Welcome to the Alliant in the Public Eye podcast, a show dedicated to exploring risk management topics and challenges faced by today's public sector leaders. Here are your hosts, Carlene Patterson and Justin Swarbrick. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of In the Public Eye. Our last few conversations have been focused on the insurance market and what you can do to drive total cost of risk, either through submissions or by getting information together for the insurance market. Today, we still want to be focused on budgets for our public entity clients. And one of the ways we can look at saving money and reducing costs is by putting together an owner-controlled insurance program or OSIP. To talk about this, we would have invited Sean Kratz and Michael Davidson to our discussion today. Before we get started, Mike and Sean, do you want to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about you and your experience? Thanks, Carleen. My name is Sean Kratz and I'm in our public entity division. I've been in the insurance business for 24 years, 20 of that being with Alliance. My main focus is on city and county business, in particular with OSIPs, working in conjunction with our construction services group. Hey, thanks, everybody. This is Mike Davidson. I joined Alliant 14 years ago into our construction services group and immediately got niched into focusing on owner-controlled insurance programs. Within a year of working with Alliant, I had been shipped from San Diego up to Sacramento. We had a, a job up there on the Sacramento International Airport. I was the on-site administrator for that program for a couple of years, then moved back down to San Diego and started expanding what I was doing within OSIPs from program management, ultimately up into handling the, the marketing placements for our San Diego division within CSG. And I've been in OSIPs that whole entire time. Well, it's good to have you both on the call with us today. Before we get into OSIPs and really talking about it specifically for public entities, maybe we can back up for our listeners and talk a little bit about what they are for those who might be unfamiliar with the term or the strategy behind an OSIP. Yeah, so again, OSIPs stands for Owner Controlled Insurance Programs, also referred to as a wrap-up. At the end of the day, if you know what an insurance policy is, it's just a big insurance policy for a large construction project. They, they can either be comprised of general liability and excess liability only, or you can add a workers' compensation component to it as well. That coverage is named first for the project owner, or in this case, as we're on topic with public entity as the first named insured, and, and then additional named insured for all of the contractors working on a project site. The OSIP concept is coming with benefits compared to a traditional approach to insurance where you have the contractors all providing their own insurance as well as the owner providing their own insurance separately. So one of the big ticket benefits that I always hear about OSIPs is that it's a way for a public entity to save money. Can you tell me a little bit about how a public entity can save money through an OSIP? Yeah, Carlene. So there's really three benefits that we talk about. And actually, cost is probably the last part of the conversation, simply because we believe that the other two are unquantifiable. So when we talk about the three benefits, what we're looking at is we're looking at the administration benefits. So in an order controlled insurance program, typically the risk manager 
and that department has to facilitate that OSIP through the duration of the project. And unfortunately, that takes up a lot of time. They're tracking certificates. There's just a lot of work that goes involved with handling or administrating an OSIP. When you employ an OSIP, typically there's going to be an administration team from the OSIP team that will take all of that work off of the risk manager's desk and the staff. So again, when you think about that, you really can't quantify how much savings that brings to the table in just workload itself. So the administration is one of the things that we talk about. There's also claims control. We think this is actually the most important simply because when you look at a claim in an OSIP, they're typically going to be fairly large. And if you have a traditional model, which is what we call when the general contractor places the insurance, what ends up happening in a claim situation is the general contractor, their broker, their attorneys are sitting in the front room while the public entity is sitting in the other room waiting for them to essentially make all the decisions. So we believe that the control when you employ an OSIP is extremely important. And that control allows the public entity to be sitting in the front room making decisions on their own project and determining exactly how to get that job back up and running as soon as possible. So we do believe that the claims control is probably one of the biggest benefits of employing an OSIP. So let's talk a little bit more about that cost savings. I assume you're talking about premiums or what are you talking about when you say there's a cost savings to the public entity? So essentially, uh, when you're talking about the savings component, what you're looking at in a traditional method is when the RFP goes out for the general contractor, they're going to insert their insurance costs, which means they're going to bundle together the general contractor's insurance. They're going to bundle together all of the the sub-tiers, and they're going to insert a line item for insurance costs. When you employ an OSIP and you do the same RFP process, you actually put wording into the RFP that the public entity is going to employ an OSIP, and that line item gets taken out because, again, the public entity would be the one that's going to procure the insurance. Now, keep in mind, contractors make a huge profit in the traditional method. So all of the cost savings from a traditional model are going to be going back to the contractor. When you employ an OSIP, essentially, there's possibilities of getting anywhere between half a percent to one and a half percent of construction values. And a lot of these OSIPs are are extremely large. So if you're talking about a, a three, four hundred million dollar project, half a percent to one and a half percent of cost savings can be substantial. And one of the reasons that public entities have been looking at OSIPs much more than in the past is simply because they look at the value that they're getting back not only on a single project, but they a lot of times end up going into what we call a rolling OSIP program where over a period of time, typically five years or so, they will just continue to roll in more and more projects. So in the aggregate, as you can imagine, that cost savings continues to multiply. So it can be it can be very substantial to a public entity. And, and as you had mentioned, Carlene, in the beginning, budgets are strapped. And, and this is really one way that public entities have really focused on looking at alternative methods for 
their construction project. Yeah, I was working and, with the water and sewer district and they put together several rolling OSIPs and they could document cost avoidance or cost savings over a like 12 year period of something like $14 million. And so that's a lot of money to put back into capital improvements when you're saving that much money. So it's a, it is a great tool when you're you know, being budget conscious. So let me ask you another question. You know, what kind of public entities and what kind of projects are typically good fits for an OSIP? Yeah, so when you look at various types of public entity projects, and, and keep in mind, it, it's pretty expansive in regards to what qualifies for an OSIP. So one, one of the larger segments that we see OSIPs implied or employed on are school projects. So there's, as you can imagine, a lot of bond initiatives around the state, and those bonds build new schools, they renovate schools. And so schools is one huge area, whether it's higher education or K through 12, that we see a lot of this work being done. There's also jail projects. So particularly in California, when Governor Brown shifted all of the inmates from the state prisons to the county jails, there was an initiative to essentially fund counties to build new jails. So we, Alliance, and our construction services group and public entity group have done many of the jail projects up and down the state of California for that initiative. Airport projects is another area that we see a lot of OSIPs being employed on. Uh, you have convention centers, you have standalone county and city projects, so it can be either a brand new city hall or a renovation of a city hall. And then, Carlene, to your point, we do a lot of water and wastewater projects with OSIPs. To expand on that a little bit, if it's a building, if it's infrastructure, if it's something that the public entity is doing and it's of the right size, then, then that's something that you can throw into an OSIP program. So when you say the right size, if I've got a risk manager that's contemplating that, so if they look at their capital improvements budget, what are they looking for and what does that mean, right size, Mike? Yeah, so I'll, I'll pick on California, and it, and it does vary from, from state to state on what level you're allowed to based on state laws and implementing an OSIP program. But in California, it's, it's a minimum of $100 million in size. And generally speaking, that's also about the size across the country that the economics of it starts to make sense. What we have actually been able to do through a JPA Alliant client is put together in California a large rolling program for the JPA's members that allows the projects to drop down to $20 million in value to both A, make sense economically because we have an economy of scale through a rolling set of projects where we have multiple projects throughout the state inside the program, and then also helps to meet that threshold of the $100 million plus uh, requirement from the state to be able to implement an OSA program because the values that we have into the program aggregate up in excess of $100 million. That's a really good point What you when you're talking about California, is that each state does have different rules with regard to OSIPs and what can be put into a public entity OSIP, is that right? Correct. Okay. All right. So when I hear the word owner controlled and when some of my clients and prospects have heard the word, I typically get two kinds of pushback. One, because procurement is used to putting out bid specs a certain way and they don't want to have to do anything differently or new or figure something out. And also from our risk control or risk 
management folks is how much more work is this going to be for us? So Mike, can you shed some light on it from both a procurement perspective and then also from a risk management perspective as far as how much work this is going to be for them? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take the, the procurement side first. So within any procurement, as it relates to insurance, the, the entity is gonna have a standard set of documents that they plug in as part of their overall 100 page procurement, right? There's about a three to five page section of that related to an insurance and indemnity. What we do at Align is we have a best practices approach to helping implement an OSIF through the procurement process in that we have standardized insurance requirements in implementing an OSIF. And then what we do is, is mesh the entity's regular requirements with ours, submit that over them to them for review and approval. And once that's approved, probably go back a little bit of track changes here and there, and then plug it in after that. And in, in terms of additional work for the owner, um, absolutely it can be if the administration and management isn't done properly from the broker side. Properly run OSIP is done through an administration process that takes the work away from the project owner and away from the public entity. And at Alliant, we have developed national standards across the country so that if California, the quake happens and, and we're wiped off and, and out into the ocean, our team in Texas can pick up a program that, that we had been previously running and it'd be run the exact same way. In addition to that, we have dedicated professionals on, on every aspect of OSIP management that are specific to OSIP. So that's from claims advocacy to the administrators that run, run the projects. You know, they know how to speak contractors because those are the folks that they're dealing with every day. So that keeps the contractors from calling up the owner and, and letting them know that something's going wrong with the insurance side. Um, and then we have, you know, down to loss control and safety services, dedicated folks from to the OSIP as well. So, so again, just to summarize that, if it's done properly from the broker and administrator side, the owner can kind of go to sleep and forget about it. If, if it's not partnered with the right folks, it can be a burden on them. That makes a lot of sense, especially if, you know, you are controlling the project that you would want to have as much, you know, control from the ground up being safety. And then if a claim occurs, making sure you're trying to control that. One of the things you mentioned had to do with the insurance requirements that are included in a OSIP versus some of the standard contract language. And it kind of triggered a thought with me with regard to some more from a reputational community standpoint and some advantages to an OSIP. And that has to do with the use of small business minority contractors. Can you talk a little bit about how an OSIP is actually good for some of these smaller contractors that might not normally work with a public entity or some of these contracts? Yeah, absolutely. Most public entities are going to have a small local disadvantaged veteran women-owned business goal for, for their projects. And an OSIP can help meet that. It, it's not the end-all be-all for it, but under a traditional approach where every contractor is required to provide their own insurance, insurance can be a barrier to entry for them. For some projects, you may have a $5 million limit with certain additional insured endorsements that for no fault of their own, that disadvantaged business can't get. They can't access it in the market because they don't have enough premium volume or they don't have enough experience to, to be underwritten towards. So they're not able to bid on the project because they can't meet those insurance requirements. But under the OSIP, because everybody is covered under the same program and they're afforded the same type of coverage and they're afforded upwards of $100 million in total limit, 
that barrier to entry is gone. The OSIP is still going to require basic evidence of insurance from those contractors once they're enrolled in the program. But that's really just going to be a, a standard $1 million, $2 million liability limit, which pretty much anybody can get. So it does help to eliminate that barrier, encourage participation in those SLBE goals. A lot of times with some of these smaller contractors, the amount of insurance that they purchase is based on what they can afford. And as we all know, and as we run into with contract review questions, it's, well, the contract's only worth X. Why do I need this much in liability insurance? And the value of the contract is never equal to the value of the exposure from, a, from some sort of a claim. So that is a great advantage. So what have you seen change, Mike, over the last few years when it comes to OSIPs and, and construction and public entities or in the space of your career? Yeah. So back when I started 14 years ago, everything was paper. We had file cabinets stacked to the roof full of contractor enrollments, contractor claims, their payroll reports. A lot of it was managed through Excel spreadsheets. And, you know, then it started to, to develop a little bit more further administratively online. And, and now that those online administration, administrative services have expanded to full, fully automated processes, contractors are able to log in themselves and have their own user ID and passwords. Reports are sent out to project owners on, on a weekly or monthly basis. So the administration has really improved over the last decade. From a market standpoint, you know, I think it's like anything. Some carriers will, will drop in and drop out from time to time. But I, I would say that the carriers have, have, have started to be a lot more involved directly with the projects and, and, and helping allocate resources to risk mitigation for the project and, and you know, wanting to see the overall success of the program. I, I think there's been some improvements there over the years as well. And you know, lastly, just, just in, in general, controlled insurance programs are much, much more prevalent now. So contractors are used to using them. They know it's part of the game, that it's something that they're going to have to do. There's not as much pushback from the contractor community as there used to be. Again, it's just something that folks are used to doing, and, and, and more and more people from a public entity standpoint are realizing the benefits and, and potential uses for their own projects. I remember a few years ago when you were pitching the concept of an OSIP, you also had to pitch community meetings and meetings with contractors and really do some outreach so that the subcontractors could get comfortable with the concept. And now if it's not an owner controlled insurance program, many times it's a contractor controlled one. So yeah, I, I was in a few of those meetings myself of like, you know, get, getting everybody copacetic and happy with, hey, we're going to do this. Are you okay with it? So exactly. I, I, yeah, been a while since I've had to, thankfully. Yeah, definitely. So question for you, Mike, we've been talking in our podcasts about how difficult and how hard the insurance market is. How has the market impacted the markets who write construction or write OSIPs? Have you seen the same kind of impact with regard to rates in the construction markets as well? Yeah, absolutely. The, the interesting thing so far to me is that the, the primary market hasn't hardened a ton. I think as everybody that is listening now to this now knows the excess market is, how do I put this lightly, screwed up. <laughs> A lot rates are, are drastically increasing on, on the excess side and building a typical $100 million tower for a project where you could do it with four carriers. It, it's now taking five, six, seven to get there. So 
you know, you're just having to get more participation there. Sometimes you're having to go to the quota share route to make to make sure that it pencils correctly still. And a big driver of that is on the primary excess, the lead excess side, where you used to be able to get a first $25 million chunk above the primary, it's now only 10. Nobody's doing 25 million anymore. I, I would say part of it is from a selfish personal standpoint, it's a little bit more difficult to do, but I don't think the public entity side and our and our clients see that. But from a rate standpoint, pick on $100 million project where you used to be able to do it for around 0.4, 0. 0.42% of, of hard costs, you're upwards around 0. 0.5 to 0.6% of hard costs for, for a $100 million tower on a $100 million project now. And one of the advantages being that when you're writing, especially a single project OSIP, you're writing the coverage, you know, from beginning to end, right? It's not something that's renewed on an annual basis. Are you able to get rates that will go for the life of the project? Correct. Yeah. So a typical OSIP term is five years. And that, you know, a lot of that on the back end has to do with reinsurance, right? And then, and then also that the carriers don't want to lock in those rates for much longer than that. So if you build a typical five-year program, those rates from inception to end are the same. As you get into, call it mega projects, upwards of 700 million north up to billion plus, you might be able to get a six, seven year term. We've, we've done that successfully in the past, but generally that magic number is five. So Sean, I am a risk manager. You are my insurance broker. I'm looking at my capital improvements projects and all the talk of the infrastructure funding that's going to be coming from the federal government. And I want to know if an OSIP is the right thing for me. What is it that a risk manager should be looking at and what can you do as a broker to help me make that decision? So it really kind of sums up the entire conversation that we've been having over the last 30 minutes. So one of the first things to be considered is, is the project the right size for an OSIP, right? Because again, typically outside of California, $100 million is kind of the starting point. So, so you're going to want to make sure that your project outside of California is at least $100 million. In California, as we talked about, Alliance has developed a rolling OSIP program through one of our JPA clients that, that Mike had mentioned, and we can actually get projects as low as $20 million. So really, it's, the, it's looking at the project size, looking at the state that you're in, and then understanding, working with your alliance broker, what are the, the legalities as well around what you can actually place. Certain states will only allow you to place the GL and the XS. It's really understanding and working with a broker that truly knows your state and the laws around placing an OSIP. The other is, will the project's duration fit within the normal time frame of an OSIP? Because as Mike mentioned, typically we put together five-year programs. In certain circumstances, we've been able to actually place six to seven-year deals, but on very, very large projects. So really looking at your project duration and understanding you know, that, that five years is, is typically what you're going to be looking at for, for a starting point. As mentioned, the legal jurisdiction to implement the OSIP is, is it's just it's paramount because you have to be very careful when you place an OSIP in a state where there's actually written language or laws that state you can't do it or you have to do it a certain way. So different states have different rules revolving around things like the size of the project, the type of the project, 
safety standards. There's there's a whole list of things. And so your broker really has to understand all of those metrics. The state of the insurance market, you really have to look to Mike's point, is this really going to pencil out? It, it, and fortunately, OSIPs, not only in California, but throughout the U.S., have been a huge benefit to public entities. And, and they actually, based on the state of the insurance market currently, they've been working very, very well compared to a traditional program and the cost benefits and all the other benefits that we've talked about throughout the podcast. The other is, again, having confidence in your broker and the administration team. One of the things that we hear most from a feedback standpoint from our clients is that we really understand this business. And the administration and the technology that Alliant has is hands down the best in the business. So it's really making sure that the broker you're dealing with truly understands the business, but also has the back room, the technology, and everything else that Mike had outlined as far as where OSIPs have kind of from a paradigm sense changed. Uh, and then the economic viability, essentially, will it pencil out? So a lot of what we talk about, again, and, and one of the things that we provide to our clients or prospective clients on projects is a pro forma. And that performa is, is hugely valuable to understanding what that half a percent to one and a half percent rate of return could be on your project. If you have a $100 million project, we actually can demonstrate from a zero loss project all the way to a 100 loss project and break that down in increments of various levels to show exactly what those savings will end up being based on your loss pick for your project. So again, it, it's, it's really just a matter of combining all of those various points and, and again, making sure that the broker and the administration team that you're dealing with truly understands what they're doing. So before we wrap up, I just have one last question for you, Mike. I've had clients who, when I've pitched the, the subject of a wrap up to them, they just kind of throw their hands up and say, it's much easier to just let the contractors do it. So what do you say to those clients or prospects? Yeah, you know, that's a pretty typical answer because that's just the, the, the way that they've done it, right? Every, the contractor's building their building, letting out all of the subcontracts. They're, they, you know, they feel that the risk is all on the contractor, but at the end of the day, it's their project and it's their risk. They, they transfer that through contract, but ultimately it still will be funneling back to them. And I wouldn't say that there is necessarily a wrong way to, to insure your project, you know, whether that be the, the traditional approach where everybody is providing their own insurance, or you go uh, contractor controlled insurance program, which is the inverse of an OSIP, right, where the contractor's in control of everything. I just think there's a better way personally, and that would be through the OSIP process. And kind of pick on an OSIP versus a CSIP. Sean mentioned it in kind of at the beginning of, of our, our podcast that the savings that are generated through a wrap-up can go to one of two places. They can go to the contractor. So you're paying the contractor for their premiums and their deductible fund and any savings from the money that they don't spend out of their deductible go straight to the contractor under a CSIP versus under an OSIP. Those unused deductible dollars go back to the to the entity and they can be used elsewhere on the project or go back into the places within the entities. But the other the other aspect of, of an OSIP are that they're more flexible from a, from a coverage standpoint. So if if you have a an entity that is doing a multi-phased wastewater project with with various general contractors involved, 
you can't really do a CSIP there because you're going to have multiple CSIPs at play that are kind of going to be fighting against each other in the event of a bad claim that, that uh, implicates different portions of the project. Whereas the OSIP, you can have all of those project co projects covered under the same program. In addition to that, if you look at picking on a, a project that we have up in Northern California Convention Center, that this is not atypical, but the, the entity has a number of contracts outside of the general contract that they have to install artwork, install the different uh, furniture, fixtures, and equipment. Um, and those contracts can't be, con can't be covered under a CSIP because they're not directly in line with the contract chain of the GC. So the, the owner is then able to uh, cover outside contracts of the GC's contract from under the OSIP. The, the last two things I would say is touch on this a bunch. Being the first named insured on an insurance policy for the, the policy wonks out there, that's, that's where you want to be. That's, that's the, you're in the driver's seat of coverage selection. And, and most importantly, uh, under the claims, any, any sort of claim scenario, you're the one that's, that's leading the charge there. And then lastly, in the unfortunate event, if as a public entity, you have to replace or fire your general contractor mid-project, there's a lot of hurdles that you have to go through in general to do that. To do that. But if you have a CSIP in place, it is almost impossible to go down that road of replacing your contractor because the insurance coverage is insanely expensive to replace mid-project. You're going to face some potential coverage gaps there. And, and really, it's just from a risk management standpoint, it's a bit of a nightmare. So, so just having that flexibility under the OSIP to replace your contractor from an insurance standpoint that's just a plug and play is something you really can't put a dollar figure on from that perspective. That's a really great point. I really have enjoyed talking with the two of you about wrap-ups and as a renowned control freak, I think that it's a great opportunity for our risk managers in the public entity world to get a little bit more control over what's going on from a construction insurance standpoint. So thanks very much to the two of you for joining us today. It is a challenging time to be a public entity risk manager and we hope that our focus podcast will help you and provide resources as we navigate 2021 and beyond. Thank you for listening. And for more information, go to insurance.alliant.com forward slash in the public eye.